what's interesting to us on this podcast in particular, I suppose, is that um, Napoleon is the iconic modern figure um, in the Pigelian firmament, I suppose, of world historic figures. He's the man who inaugurates political modernity in the aftermath of the French Revolution um, and who's Napoleonic and famously um, uh Hegel himself, the man himself, he sees Napoleon, suppose, you know, as the story goes, he sees Napoleon at a distance. Napoleon was reconnoitering um, before the Battle of Jena in, in Prussia. Hegel sees him at a distance. He sees because Napoleon famously went on a white horse. He sees him undertaking a reconnaissance and he says, he writes um, to his friend about how tremendously affected and moved he was to witness this world soul on horseback, which gave rise to this idea of, um, I suppose, holding history by the reins, riding history on horseback, the idea that there are these world historic figures who um, who can set the pace and determine the flow of events. Wouldn't that make history the horse or the horse history um, rather than... Yeah, Napoleon? well, it's the, it's the boulderized... I mean, it's the boulderized version of... Um, of I suppose of Hegel's, um, it's the memeified version of Hegel's understanding of world historic figures, which is not so much that they they aren't like demiurgs that kind of um, are out of whom history flows, but rather vessels or um, through which history flows. Rather, yeah, there's I mean, an engine or a, or a horse to take the old fashioned. Yeah, that's engine, true. Who could, yeah, people who can recognize a good horse when they see one. So, well, I mean, well, I think... and, and famously cited, you know, world spirit uh, cited by Bungacast in uh, Silvio Berlusconi much later on. You know? Yeah, so that's worth. So I think it's worth, you know, like Napoleon is the is the kind of the iconic figure from the first end of history that was declared by Hegel in the aftermath of um, the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution. And so there was no way that if there is a film about Napoleon, a big Hollywood film about Napoleon, there was no way that we couldn't actually end up talking about Napoleon. And to think also about what, you know, a biopic about Napoleon means at this point, because I don't think it's accidental either that it's um, a popular film at this point or that Ridley Scott waited um, so long to do it. Hello, hello, great men, and especially great women of history. Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, as usual, and uh, also here, for those of you who are watching, you can see George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe um, going right to left, at least as I'm seeing it. I don't know about you guys. Um, in, uh, in the UK... Also, oh. also politically... I think I'm uh, no. further further on the right. I don't know, maybe. I was going to say it has no correspondence to position on the political spectrum, apart from the fact that Alex is in the technocratic centre when it comes to the podcast. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and quite happily so. Anyway, so um, are we going to um, continue with the pretense and the mystery that we're going to examine a, a very serious and good film, or can we drop that straight away and just say that this is not a very good film that we're going to be talking about? I don't know, Phil. 
Yeah, well, I suppose I wanted to, um, I did want to start by asking you both, um, yay or nay, we're talking about Ridley Scott's Napoleon, we all made an effort to go see it in the cinema, um, and we felt for, I mean, reasons we'll talk about in a moment as to uh, why we felt it would be um, something good to talk about for this podcast in particular, um, but first of all, just a quick yay or nay, so George, yay or nay? I'm thinking about like Gladiator. It's definitely it's definitely a thumbs down, <laughs> or whatever the one is that that yeah, means kill, kill kill the Gladiator. Yeah, Alex, send Ridley Scott to to the lions, um, <laughs> or to the cockroaches. It's a thumbs down for me point. too. So um, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for joining us. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> but there is still stuff to discuss. Um, I think um, you know, like um, I think there is still stuff to discuss. Um, not only in terms of the, not only in terms of the film itself, but also you know what it what you could say it represents um, as a phenomenon. Um, but before we before getting into that, um, I was surprised by. I'm quite a fan of Ridley Scott, um, and there was a good line actually in one of the reviews that listeners and or viewers will find in the show notes was um, I think it was by the guardians film critic, Peter Bradshaw, who called Ridley Scott, the Wellington of movies, which I thought was a nice line because he's not a genius. Um, and famously Napoleon defeated Stanley Kubrick, you know, in the sense that Stanley Kubrick was trying to put together a biopic of Napoleon and it defeated him. Whereas um, Ridley Scott has succeeded in putting together a biopic. And so in the same way that Wellington beat Napoleon, but Wellington was not a military genius. Um, the Duke of Wellington was not a military genius, even though he beat Napoleon at Waterloo famously. So I think, you know, Ridley Scott, like it's fair to call him, I think he's probably a bit more than a Wellington of cinema because he does have some, you know, he does have some genuinely great cinematic achievements, even if, even if he wouldn't count as a cinematic genius or as um, a director of the first rank. But before we talk about Napoleon specifically, I wanted just to canvas opinion from my fellow podcasters as to what their favorite Ridley Scott movie is. And listeners and viewers by all means should feel to, um, should let us know as well in due course. But uh, let's start with you, George, what's your favorite Ridley Scott movie? Well, there's definitely a correct answer to this, isn't there? You're supposed to say Blade Runner. You're supposed to say like this, um, you know, incredibly influential, like great story, looks fantastic. Um, and yeah, very, yeah, very memorable film. Um, but no, it's not for me. It's Gladiator. I'm sorry. I know that's the, uh, the populist choice, but um, really yes, yeah, just rewatching it recently, it's just so enjoyable. And Russell Crowe is really, really good in it. I mean, even some of the, um, I don't know, the less famous Ridley Scott films, they like Black Hawk Down, very watchable, very, you know, very gripping, sounds great. And yeah, I mean, I think I would probably agree with you, you know, not a cinematic genius, um, if, if, you know, such a thing exists or if that's not too harsh on him, but some really incredibly engaging films. Um, so yeah, I should say Blade Runner. I know I should, but I can't. I can't lie. It's Gladiator. Yeah, it's funny. Like, um, so I remember, like, there's a scene. I think there's always a scene in a Ridley Scott movie where he uses cinema to a real effect, even if the film, in or you know, all in all, isn't actually like necessarily kind of. Um, 
you know, kind of you could cast it as a work of genius or whatever. But so I remember like in Black Hawk Down, there's this amazing scene where it, and it's just one scene that brings home, I think, the kind of the, um, I suppose, the experience of being in a firefight in urban warfare in this decayed third world capital. And that's when the American soldiers are beneath the helicopter and the shell casings from the helicopter's weapons are dropping into their collars. And it's a little, it's just a little detail, but it captures that sense of um, kind of total confusion um, because these hot shell casings are dropping into their collars and they're struggling to get them out at the same time as they're being fired upon um, by General Idid's forces in Mogadishu. Anyway, it was always a scene that stayed with me because it's those little details that kind of bring alive a scene, um, which I think Ridley Scott is actually very good at. Um, But moving on anyway, so... Alex, what's your favorite Ridley Scott movie? And don't say you don't have one. Well, I mean, I, you know, honestly, maybe this is a, a like a real oversight of mine. I didn't really have, you know, before this, because obviously I've done a little bit of research <sighs> before I come in to discuss this. I didn't have, I didn't have like a list of Ridley Scott. I, I don't know if you I have any list. Have told you. You just need to know some movies by Ridley Scott that you've seen. Like, also, but you that's can go thing. on Wikipedia and see well, what that's films the, he's that's, done. That was the research in question, list. right? So then, so then I went and looked and I was like, oh, okay, he did all of these. Right, so I didn't wasn't aware. So have you um, seen Gladiator? I, I've seen Gladiator. So Gladiator was probably the one have that you seen most Blade marked Runner? me. Yes. Have you seen uh, Black Hawk Down? No. Uh, that's an oversight. Have you seen Alien? I'm not sure. I I can't remember. I think I saw. Oh it as, my god! Sure. I remember some space alien thing, but I don't remember. You know, I was a teenager. Um, I think if you'd so seen it as a as a young kid, you would definitely remember it because I I saw that when I was I would have watched it probably young. at like seventeen was, or something. There like, is a very yeah, famous very, scene in it for which it's very well known, Alex, which is I, why I, people I, tend I to remember it. I know all these it. things. I I unfortunately have all this pop culture fed into me by by osmosis. So you know, I don't have a choice on these matters. Um, I would love to isolate myself, but I can't. Um, no, I don't know. I, you know, Gladiator really marked me when I saw it, but of course I was like a, a teenage boy and was like, wow, this is awesome. Right. Um, and, uh, not, and not just awesome, but like affecting, right. Um, the thing with his wife and the kids and the memory of it and the wheat fields and, you know, I, I shed a tear there. So, you know, good stuff. Um, but I, 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 I don't try, you know, I don't know what I would evaluate artistically though, what I did watch, and this is, um, very, I think to the point, I, I went and watched the duelists. Um, last night, um, which is Ridley Scott's first film, very uh, well awarded. I think he won Best New Director or something at Cannes when it came out in 1977, and it's brilliant. And it also takes a place takes place during the Napoleonic Wars, and maybe we can return to it. But a much much better film. You think okay. in a duel between the duelists and Napoleon, the duelists would would yes. win for best um, film? I just know before we move moved on, I did want to say also Tony Scott, um, you know Ridley Scott's brother. Uh, direct and actually Ridley Scott's done some great TV stuff but I watched um, Deja Vu recently and this is a, just an, an absolutely weird like completely um, uh, in some ways unhinged like technological time travel slash panopticon uh, film by uh, by Tony Scott so if listeners are looking for or or viewers even are looking for a kind of bit of brainless entertainment I would uh, I would say if you can switch your brain off for uh, an hour and a half deja vu is um is is a good one. Yeah, it's um it's an interesting one. Like, so I I haven't seen the duelists, so Alex is ahead of me um on that one. And Ridley Scott has made some truly awful films, like the sub the later Alien ones that he did, Alien Covenant and Prometheus. I mean, they were terrible. Um, 
Black Rain, I think, is actually an, one which I think is an overlooked, a great kind of overlooked um, Ridley Scott movie. But I think uh, unoriginally, probably that my favorite would be Blade Runner, even though I like Alien very much. Um, and I think it's and Gladiator, I think, also has its moments, as does um, as does Black Hawk Down, like I mentioned. But I think Blade Runner is still... Um, is still, despite you know, despite perhaps already passing over into cliche in some way, in some ways, it still is um, a magnificent movie, and that also allow shows the kinds some of the kinds of things you can do in cinema that you can't really do in any other art form effectively. So, um, unoriginal, I think, but valid um, Ridley Scott choice. So you mean, that Blade take... Runner the stage play, I yeah, I'd be, I'd be <laughs> Blade Runner the musical. <laughs> yeah, well, there we, yeah, now we're there's, anyway. There is there's a Blade Runner sequel, and there's going to be a Gladiator sequel, so we can. Is uh, there really? Yeah, yeah. A Blade Runner, um, the Blade Runner sequel is good too, but that's for another time. Um, okay, so um, before uh, before we getting into the movie itself, um, the first thing I just wanted to quickly because I was. Um, intrigued by this and despite varying kind of responses to the film um, I think almost everyone has says that Joaquin Phoenix does a very good job in portraying Napoleon I wondered if um, either of you have encountered no I disagree portrayals. sorry sorry to, so, no? yeah sorry to jump in there but yeah I think I think it's um, before, but before you tell us what you make of him tell us I was going to ask have you encountered fictional portrayals of Napoleon before I actually don't think I ever have I had a look at like some of the some of the actors who've who've played him. So Brando, DeVito, even Rowan Atkinson apparently um, for Blackadder fans out there. Jack Nicholson never got to, although I think he would have been quite good. I can imagine Brando being particularly good, but I haven't seen it. I should have obviously seen it before doing this. But I think even you know even casting Joaquin Phoenix, you're already saying something about yeah. you know what sort of Napoleon you want to present because he's you know famous for. Um, I, I think probably like creepy villains or creepy. There's a certain like anti-hero vibe if you you know you watch the Joker or you were never really here. And then it's something kind of brooding. And, I think would probably be and yeah. a lot of the reviews picked up on he, that. Well, and he plays the insane. He plays the insane um, emperor in Gladiator. Yeah, that's what, just what I was about to say. But in in all these cases, there is sort of like a bit unhinged or petulant or not in control. And I think that definitely comes through. And we, you know, we can talk about it. But I think. Straight away, Whacking Phoenix is a is a. Although I think he's a great actor, and particularly in you were never really here. He's he's amazing, but not for um. I don't think not for me, Jeff, in terms of that casting choice because you've already set down a. You know, you've already started going down a path, which I don't think really fits. But yeah. I guess I was left wondering after this film, despite its flaws, I was left wondering after this film, what is the, um, is, is there something significant about a, you know, a seeming return to films about, um, these iconic kind of great men? I mean, I suppose there's Oppenheimer, um, and war movies as well, you know, so there's Oppenheimer and now Napoleon. And there was also Top Gun, not exactly a war movie, um, a new Cold War movie. Um, but nonetheless, it seems to me kind of um, out of perhaps out of sync with the kinds of um, 
the moronic kind of uh, superhero movies that have been pumped out of Hollywood for the mm. last 10 years or so. So I went, I went, uh, and, had a, I went and had a look um, at, at trying to kind of compile a list of, of recent kind of great man, quote, quote, quote unquote, uh, biopics, and, um, and trying to see what other kind of films have been made recently. And the list is pretty short, actually, right, of, of recent things. Oppenheimer, which Phil has already mentioned, which also fits into another category of scientists, which I'm going to come to in a second. But you have things like, okay, I'm not even sure this counts. First Man on Neil Armstrong. But, you know, that's kind of an astronaut is ultimately a, a sort of a technician. So I'm not sure really counts as a great man. You had Churchill, 2017's Churchill. I, I didn't see that myself. Um, you have Spielberg's Lincoln from earlier last decade, um, which is in some ways the anti-Napoleon in terms of being very historically accurate and, and boring. Oh, wait, so it's not the opposite because Napoleon is also boring. But anyway, um, you have Selma on Lincoln Martin Luther King Lincoln is a great Jr. movie. It is. I, I really liked it, but, you know, it's... It, it's a bit plodding. Um, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, I guess, um, which is deliberately silly. Um, Oliver Stone's Nixon or Alexander, um, and then King George the Fourth in in the King's Speech. So you know the list is is um, relatively short, and you're kind of squeezing those into that category. In a lot of the cases, you have a lot more on other kind of you know other biopics on not people who are really great men of history by any kind of definition. You have kind of smaller figures like Harvey Milk. Right. And then you have various Holocaust or World War II kind of small heroes. And then really, I think this is really interesting, a large category of people who come from the business world who are the great men of history. So you have Danny Boyle, Steve Jobs, you have Jordan Belfort in uh, Wolf of Wall Street, and you've got the film about Zuckerberg and then the social network. Um, and then a whole bunch about music, right? Looking back at kind of the boomers music, effectively, Freddie Mercury, Elvis, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, and then a bunch of kind of art and science. So Truman Capote, John Forbes Nash, and A Beautiful Mind, um, the film about uh, Turing, Tesla, Einstein, Stephen Hawking, and indeed Oppenheimer, which you could throw into that list as well. So anyway, all of that to say, not many recent kind of great men of history kind of films, quite a lot about business, music, and uh, science and technology. Yeah, I think the business ones on that list are definitely the strongest films, in my opinion. Um, but I would actually challenge that it is a great... I mean, it's 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 a film about a great man, but it's not a great man film. I mean, it's a film. It's not a film about Napoleon. It's a film that has Napoleon in. I mean, <laughs> this is this is my not particularly hot take, but like, yeah. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't. You don't see him making any choices or decisions. This stuff just happens to him. It's a really kind of striking like aspect of the film that yeah. Here is this kind of. You know, as Phil, you were saying, like if he's the world, you know, the world spirit on 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 horseback, you know, he's either he either is, is that world spirit or he knows how to ride it, and yet he seems completely passive. And in fact, you know, the central theme of the film is a is his relationship with Josephine, and and it's just, I guess, used to kind of, I would say, just you know, make him seem not a not a great man. I well, in in fact. Like nothing without Josephine, as as he says it, in could, one could of the lines. Napoleon and Josephine, as some critics have called, have, have suggested, or Napoleon Hart, Josephine. You know that would be more <laughs> more faithful, right, to what the film yes. actually is. Um, yes. I, it's funny. I, I was looking through the notes that I took while I was in the theater, um, and what I did note that. Um, like this was trying to cover so much ground. So it was halfway through. Yeah, and it was Tell me that you didn't do it on your phone because that in itself is a crime for which you should be shot. The, the theater was like almost empty. There was like oh no one God, anywhere Alex, near me. Jesus Christ, oh, you're one of those people, aren't you? Well, I couldn't write it with pen and paper. It was dark. Why not? It was dark. 
But then you should have done it when writing. you got out. Anyway, fine, fine. Anyway, so I just needed to note this down. I'm not so surprised was, that you're the type of person who takes notes on their phone in the cinema. I'm, whatever. Um, so I, it was halfway through and it was already like 1805, right? Um, and I was just going like, this is a huge undertaking. He wants to do basically all of Napoleon, except for basically his prehistory and his rise to power. You know, there's just a couple of scenes um, there. And like, it's such a huge undertaking and he does it and he wants to do it in two and a half hours. Supposedly there's a director's cut, which is going to come out, which is four hours. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure I want more of this film. Um, and it, but it, what I noted, which is important, it fits into what George says, is that, you know, Ridley Scott made no choices. He made no editorial choices. He's like, I'm going to do all of Napoleon. Right. And then ends up doing kind of nothing. And it's funny because Napoleon himself also makes no choices. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't quite think of it like that. But I mean, um, there is like... You know, there is um, there is something to that. So uh, it's interesting, you may, you know, like you said about, so there are a few movies in the past. I guess it's also a matter of context, partly as well, um, that, you know, Oppenheimer and Napoleon, I mean, Oppenheimer has a more, I mean, people have made this and we don't, we're not on here to talk about Oppenheimer, but part of the reason Oppenheimer is of the moment is partly because, um, um he is at that inflection, you know, at a particular inflection point um, and unleashing this um, new technology, the potentially destructive new technology. And so there are, feel like there's many echoes as well as the kind of the existential risk posed by nuclear weapons in an era that is um, completely consumed with um, existential risk, whether real or imagined. And so, you know, those resonances are very clear. I'm not sure there are resonances with Napoleon but nonetheless, I am, you know, like, I still think there is some kind of um, juxtaposition between, and I wonder, I suppose, if it'll carry on, um, between kind of real figures who are great men versus um, superheroes, the kind of the adolescent fantasy of greatness. Um, yeah. And if yeah, there just, is some, you know, if that indicates that cinema's mature, you know, kind of becoming more serious again. George, yeah, just, yeah, just on Oppenheimer, I think it's a vastly superior film because you you do get the sense that there is something historic with a capital h happening that the you know that the inner struggle of the of the man or the kind of events that he goes through is related to this as you said this like you know really important historical change and i think you know christopher nolan kind of recognizes that and you know not an original observation but he makes all these puzzle films and oppenheimer is a is a puzzle film what sort of man makes a you know makes a bomb that could destroy you know destroy humanity i mean that's a pretty good big historical question but you could have had that with napoleon you know what sort of man conquers europe you know that's both the man and also the the context and the, the history around it and you know think about how nolan sets it up it's like i mean i won't try not to give anything away if, if um listeners haven't seen it but it's like goes back and forth and there's a key moment and there's key things which go into this and that's where the drama comes from whereas i think you know ridley scott as you said alex doesn't really make any choices it's all chronological it's all like this thing happens then that thing's happened it's history as you know one fucking thing after another it's just the film one fucking scene after another because there isn't any sense of what is the turning point of this guy's life of this guy's kind of historic rise so i think you know that's that's almost like a missed opportunity to have this you know what is the defining moment of napoleon's life that is one of the defining moments of European history, if you kind of tell that story in that way. So I don't want to rag on Ridley too much after he's given us some of those great films, but it's just, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't try and tell that, that kind of historical story at all. 
But I mean, yeah. I, I, what's interesting to me is that even trying to take it on its own terms, right? So, I mean, I think there's loads of uh, moves he could have made in trying to tell the Napoleon story, um, which would have all been interesting, right? Like the social context of revolution and the gravedigger of the revolution. Or Napoleon as a as the parvenu, you know, um, kind of coming up, you know, coming from, a you know, provincial notables in Corsica and his uncouth manners, which actually doesn't really come through in, in Phoenix's depiction of him, which I thought there's was There's some the, of that. Okay, uh, I didn't. I, it didn't mark me anyway. Um, you know, his imperial ambition, yes, yeah, sort of, but he, he just kind of flunks his way to the top. You know, what, let me just quote from um, Le Figaro's review of it, which I was looking at some of the French coverage of it. Maybe I don't know if we're going to talk about some of the reviews, but I really liked this line, which was that um, Ridley Scott's Bonaparte conquered supreme power with barely more panache than an apparatchik modestly getting elected on a proportional list ballot. <laughs> I thought that was just like spot on. That was exactly it. He just kind of like, oh yeah, now I'm, I'm, he's ambitious, sure, but he just kind of ends up there. And it's like, no, where's the kind of, you know, the drive, the ambition, the, 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 the sense of destiny of becoming great? No, it's just kind of there. Um, or he could be a bloodthirsty dictator even if you wanted to do something actually reactionary, right? But I don't think it's even good enough to be reactionary. So what you get is it's kind of supposedly, you know, this sort of character study of the psychology and how he's a cuck and how he loves his wife who cheats on him and all his decisions are driven by Josephine. So, okay, so you're doing that film, right? This is what the, this is, the only choice he makes is to do that and to, um, in some way foreground what would be normally the second plot line, but, you know, his thing with Josephine. And even that I found flat, shallow, yeah. unaffecting, indifferent, yeah. you know, for me. So I noted down like this feels like a young millennial or Zoomer movie. You know, all that there is is the self. And even that there's a shallow relationship to the self. You know, it's just kind of distant, yeah. grayed out like, oh, yeah. I mean, you could have you could have actually cut all the scenes with Josephine out and it wouldn't have changed that much. It would have yeah. been a short film. obviously. So is but... that why? So I guess this is the question is like it's Napoleon at the end of the end of history, not Napoleon at the return of history. Mm, I mean, I suppose yeah. that would be the um, that would be the vibe I got from the film. And I was trying to think, I mean, what would have made it, you know, how would you have made it more dramatic and historic? You know, so, I mean, there is the thing that it's kind of a it's not. It's not, I mean, you know, it wouldn't, I'm not sure it would have succeeded as a movie if it didn't have some aspect of his personal character, given, you know, it's supposed to be a biopic about an individual. For sure. Um, so it would need that, you know, and and I thought the letters, his letters to Josephine, given that he wrote them across his life, you know, would have kind of given a good narrative kind of spine to events. But there's not, like you say, there is nothing else. Um, or they could have structured the film, you know, his letters, well, that's which were what famously I mean, yeah. stolen, you know, could have structured, like could have come been interspersed and said it's like a, you, you're not really sure. It's like it's a, a page. A, it's this kind a of photo page without turning. Like, focus. It's with, yeah. There's no focus, right? So I'm like, what yeah. am I meant to be paying attention to in this image? Is it the foreground? Is it the background, et cetera, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. And I mean, part of that, I think, is so what's interesting is though that they do, um, they do have he so they do go through and I don't know if there'll be more of this in the four hour cut, which like you, Alex, I'm not sure I could um, actually kind of um, find the effort <laughs> to get through. But there is this there is the kind of the um, there is the interest. One interesting aspect of the of the movie is that it goes through the key kind of historic moments of um of Napoleon's life, um, not all of them, but um, some of the most significant. Obviously, not his kind of remote meeting with Hegel is never is never brought up. Um, but um, 
before, so I wanted to talk about what our favorite kind of points and scenes were to take from it. But before we do that, just to talk briefly about this idea of Napoleon as, um, as or what the first end of history is. So this is, we've, you know, we famously kind of, um, we tag this pod as the podcast of the, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history, meaning that the posts, the era with between 1991, 2016, roughly, um, that era that end that began with the collapse of the Soviet Union and ended with either the great financial crash or the um, or the political backwash of it, um, with Trump's election to the White House, the Brexit vote, and so on. Um, that era was the end of the end of history. Sorry, the end of history, because it was characterized by this um, lack of political contestation. And Hegel famously says that it's the history ends. In, with the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars that follow it. Um, and I suppose I just wanted to talk a bit about what that meant, because I think it goes to a, helps us to go to a deeper understanding of what, um, of what I suppose, the Hegelian understanding of history is. Um, and so what I understood, or what I take kind of Hegel to be saying, um, and listeners, I mean, who are interested in this particular can get more of it from our book, um, published a few years back now, but... Um, what I understood Hegel to be saying with that is when he says it, history ends, it's to say that politics replaces history. So history understood as these um, kind of as history, which is in which the pace is set by world historic figures such as Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great or um, Napoleon himself, um, that instead of that, once you have the establishment of independent nation states, um, in a Europe of sovereign nation states, that you get the establishment of politics, both within states that are now kind of constitutional and that have um, various, um, you know, kind of various internal political structures through which political, public political will can be expressed and individuals' will can be embodied in the sovereign state itself. And you also have independent sovereign states and the end of the Holy Roman Empire and the kind of the... Um, the legacy of absolutist and feudal Europe. And so that was what I understood Hegel to mean by the end of history, that politics replaces history. It's no longer, it's something in which everyone has a stake. Every individual has a stake um, and people are integrated into state decision-making through the various kinds of um, political structures that are internal to the state and through the fact the state can act independently as a sovereign state in collision with or in interaction with other sovereign states. And so if that's the meaning, if that's the first end of history, I guess then it means that at the end of the end of history or the end of the second end of the end of the second end of history, the 1990s, the, yes, then we end up with, we still, yeah, we don't, we still don't have um, politics or indeed history. Um, I don't think we have either. We don't have history in the sense of um, kind of um, the Hegelian version of history of great men kind of imprinting themselves upon events. And we don't have politics in the sense of the estab of um, states that are politically integrated, in which um, their citizens can have their express their both their individual and collective voice through the their representation within the state itself, is that right? Yeah, I mean, if 
if that's the understanding of of politics and, and history, I, th- I think the the film doesn't give you any insight to either. I don't think it gives you any insight into how one man's kind of uh, aspirations or psychology could could end up determining so much of events, and it doesn't really give you a sense of the politics of how you know of how states interact or how or how they how they collide. I mean, one thing it was as hearing you talk that through was making me think we we have done an episode previously on a on a similar figure in many ways to um to napoleon and a film about him so when we did the um berlusconi biopic lauro and i think this was quite quite a while ago that we did this i mean here's a another kind of um you know end of end of history kind of character and obviously very different another uh, yeah a um but a uh a northern a northerner rather than a uh a course rather than an islander yeah yeah um yeah and i think i think um sorrentino's film about berlusconi is way more kind of interesting and dynamic it doesn't really get at the at the the man himself there's you know when we talked about it there's this one scene where he's kind of the salesman and he just picks up a phone book and decides to, to sell some some dream to some random woman in the in the phone book and that's when he comes alive but the rest of that that film is all kind of it's not clear why things happen but it kind of that makes sense in that context whereas in the context of napoleon having this kind of this um just random collection of events happening one after the other feels very unsatisfying so i wanted to ask um what the i i mean well two things um to talk through the kind of the key moments, uh, some of the kind of key iconic moments in Napoleon's um, um, career and life, and how they are rendered in um, in Ridley Scott's film. Um, but before then, I just wanted to ask, what you know, um, if there's anything that you took from the film that you would say is sal- you know, you would salvage from it, um, or what your favorite scene was. I mean, everyone yeah, talks about the battle scenes, right? Like, yeah. um, as being as being great. I, you know, the lack of meaning um, is 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 troubling, right? So you have these great battle scenes, which are gory and bloody, but because you don't know who's fighting whom, um, unless you happen to, you know, like you know, actually know your history about it. Assuming you know the, the average viewer won't, that you see a battle at Augsburg or at you know at, at Austerlitz in in the case of the, the film, I think, which has the biggest kind of battle set piece. Um, you don't know who's who, who's fighting who. I think you maybe get a sense that there's the Austrians, but you don't know who they are. Are they are they who are they in alliance with? So you don't know why this battle happens, right? There's no context, so so it's just pure spectacle, right? It's not informed by anything. The spectacle itself. You know, the shooting of the cannons at this frozen lake where people fall in, apparently um, not really true, but it's cool. Like, I, I'm, I'm not going to be a nerd about it. Um, you know, I think there's a certain amount of you know, artistic license that you're allowed in that. I'm not going to hold Ridley Scott accountable for, you know, him having um, Napoleon shoot at the pyramids. Like, I don't give a fuck. Like, that's fine. Whatever. You can, that's, that, you have enough artistic license there to do that, even if it's not true. Um, there's far graver historical errors of historical misrepresentation in what he does i think um but you know the, the battle the battle scenes are cool i just wish they hadn't been all kind of grayed out as along the lines of the whole you know scale of the film where it all feels kind of you know kind of distant cold autumnal 
um, and not alive. And this is the birth of the of the modern world, um, or even or even the death of the world. You know, if you want to be outright reactionary, you could say this is the end of everything, right? Um, this is savagery and barbarism, and we need to go back to the ancien regime. Like that would be reactionary, but it would be something. And this ends up kind of it's not even good enough to be reactionary, as I <laughs> as I said earlier. So, so I think the the best bit of the film, and I, I mean, I didn't read any reviews before watching it i definitely agree with the british director ben wheatley don't read any reviews before you go and see a film don't watch the trailer then afterwards read as much as you can particularly yeah. if you think it's interesting so yeah i think it was that that austerlitz fight uh, battle scene with the yeah just like watching uh, men and horses drown in an icy lake it's like i don't care if that happened or not that looks really great and it's so you know it's so dramatic and loud and if you see it in the cinema that's a great spectacle and then after that when he's um if I remember correctly, he's he's kind of having a glass of wine, basically, with the um, with the Austrian emperor, and he's sort of like, "You made you made me make a mistake, you know. I could have pressed my victory and, and captured you all, and basically, like, I could have could have killed you all." And that's when you finally see this kind of, yeah, he's this <clears throat> kind of great general, and you know, clearly extremely arrogant, and but he kind of justifies it, and you think, okay, well, you're sort of starting to see some element of of a kind of you know um you know great man performance and you know if that's all the film was him winning all these battles and then just like rubbing it in the faces of his enemies i could have i could have kind of enjoyed that <laughs> yeah. actually yeah you know but, but, it, but you it don't didn't... get a sense of the military genius you're told that he's like a military genius but you don't get a sense of like what the maneuvers are that he's doing right so you're also yeah, like and if if you kind of reflect on that that even that battle scene for the for that long you're like why were they just riding over this frozen lake didn't they know it was a lake <laughs> isn't that yeah. like should, they probably shouldn't have done that so yeah it does kind of undo that quickly but i think you know it's half this is a, one of the problems with the film it falls halfway between this all out spectacle and this kind of psychological portrait and showing his inner you know life and decisions and so i mean those those um high points are probably fewer and further between than if um if it had just been a, a completely invented historical figure like some french general <laughs> i mean actually that's not a good example because then it's obviously about napoleon but that's why gladiator was good because it's like this guy is just in a historical setting and he's a good character and he gets to kind of you know beat people up and chop their heads off and that's yeah, cool yeah though you have i mean they did have marcus aurelius and Joaquin Phoenix played his son, so I mean they did have some historical characters in the in Gladiator that were, um, I think, that formed kind of important backdrops to the yeah fair um, to the film. So it's yeah, I mean the Battle of Austerlitz was also my favorite scene, and it was done. I you know I thought the particularly the scene of the um, the Austrian the rider with the Austrian coat of arms kind of sinking in um, into the lake. That was and the and the kind of the. Uh, the colors you know between the blood and the the iciness of the ice crashing that was an amazing scene and that showed you i think what you could really have done if you'd made it kind of consistently cinematic but also kind of um managed to create you know some kind of uh, dramatic tension along the way um so that i think was um um you know it was an amazing it was an amazing scene also shooting at the pyramids i thought that was a br that was also again an artistic license that I think was justified and maybe one of the few moments like where you get that sense of, um, of kind of world historic, the kind of uh, Napoleonic conceit, the world historic ambition um, and the scale of what the Napoleonic enterprise was in um, kind of uh, the force of the modern world confronting these 
ruins, you know, of the ancient world. But again, you know, more could have been made of it that uh, that was simply left behind. So, Alex, but, you mentioned you know, historic. Yeah, 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 go on. No, I mean, you had mentioned, you know, wither politics. I guess was the question that that you had asked, and I just wanted to mention something. Yeah, well, about, I wanted to um, come to that, but go on. Okay. Well, no, just about the about the military, right? Because that's an area where um, I think a lot of people don't uh, see it in technical terms and don't see the politics behind war, right? Um, the politics, particularly at the kind of technical level of militaries and whatever. But that's something which is really interesting in what Napoleon uh, represents and which, again, Ridley Scott completely glosses over. Um, again, it's, I'm not saying, Ridley Scott, you should make this film that I want to see, but you got to make about it about something so i'm just suggesting things that it could have been about um but you know like so the levé en masse you know the kind of modern conscription army with officers that were committed to the revolution and committed to the republic made this army which it was basically france and its neighbors against the whole of europe right um was able to take them on and defeat most of them how you know, but we don't we don't get any insight into that whatsoever. But it's precisely for those reasons that I mentioned that this is like a modern um, republic, revolutionary republic, which has come out of it will come out of revolution and the deposition of the ancien regime, which makes it a, 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 a the only regime with a meaning to it, with a kind of mission. Whereas all the other ones yeah. are just these monarchies and empires, which are just there for their own sake. Um, but, you and get, that make- but how would you? So how would you do it? So tell us, Alex, like. So you, because you know, you you see you see the kind of the iconic moment of the revolution. It opens with, and so we've we should have said to listeners and viewers, spoiler alerts all the way. But it opens with the execution of Marie Antoinette, um, and it rehearses some of the kind of the death throes of the of the republic. Um, how how would you have conveyed that point that the that the republic and the Napoleonic military victories reflected? Um, the successes of the revolution. How could you have conveyed that cinematically? Okay, so uh, just to pick up on a point which is not my own, because I think one of the reviewers, one of the reviews which I read points this out, but that Joaquin Phoenix is 50, right? And he's portraying Napoleon at kind of at the youngest at age 20. The Napoleon's army, the main kind of generals and, and captains and everything else, a lot of them were very young, right? Like kind of in their 20s um, against a lot of the officers in the like Habsburg and Prussian and Russian um, armies being like in their 60s, which is also another reason for the vitality of the Grande Armée as against these other guys. Um, and so the, the youth and vitality and the modernity, you know, this explosion of, of this new modernity onto the scene, I could have been captured by like people being younger against all these old farts. And like, no, I, on the contrary, if anything, you get the, the kind of opposite idea, right? Um, as the kind of Napoleon and his army being kind of gray and old and, and whatever. So like, that's just one small thing, but um, would have been yeah. quite, would have impressed yeah. upon the viewer. Or that's a good point. Gen, you could just have Gen Z versus boomers, all the, all the French <laughs> armies. Would be. No, but I think it's, it's something which went through my head is like, you can't, that's like the hardest thing to represent that kind of aspect of history, which is why Napoleon's army was so successful and so disciplined and so motivated. And that's, you know, you can show the, you can show the image of the revolution and the guy holding up the um, Marie Antoinette's head and Napoleon's in the crowd and he kind of gives a meaningful look and he's like thinking, Hmm, this could be, this could be something worth, uh, worth paying attention to, but it's, (laughs) it's just such a massive, I mean, it is, it is a bit, a bit of a kind of cheap shot. In terms of shot, i.e., shot of uh, Whacking Phoenix's uh, face when he he sees this um, execution. But yeah, I mean, how do you represent this, like this historic force and this kind of um, energy? But yeah, I mean, that's that's that should have been the the thing to try and uh, power Napoleon's you know rise as a as a character. 
but it's not an easy thing to do. But actually, Alex, maybe you've got the first step. Just cast young actors and all the others are old. I suppose I wanted to talk a bit about some of the key scenes. Um, and this is, uh, you've mentioned favorite scenes, but I suppose I wondered if there's any, and we've me- and mentioned about how he fails to kind of um, make that link between military success and political change. Um, and that there would be obvious ways to do it, as Alex suggested. But is there any kind of, um, is there anything that you saw in the film, which you think was, gave some you know some insight or some kind of aspect of the of the of the politics of the period because what struck me was he goes through all of the you know not again but he goes through some of the main points right the fall of robespierre um the terror and the fall of robespierre um the end of the republic the coup d'etat um through which the directory is overthrown he goes through napoleon's um, notorious coronation he goes through the key battles, the negotiations with um, the negotiations with um, the Tsar, um, and then he also kind of you know goes to um, right up to the downfall and the um, the uh, the kind of the hundred days um, when Napoleon gets back from Elba. So, is there anything from those moments that you guys thought was worth? or gave something which is worth taking away from the movie? I I think the... It's not exactly answering your question, but the, the, the scenes that stood out as the worst scenes in the film, for me, I think were... <laughs> were, were I mean, so when, he, when they're having the annulment, and then it's like, this is supposed to be really dramatic and important for these characters, and it's, you know, there's no... There's not enough drama or tension there, so it's kind of a shortcut when... Mm when he, he slaps Josephine. And I guess the whole, the reason why, why I would say that and answer your question, Phil, is because the, it seems like the only thing that just, that's driving him is that he loves France. He always says, I mean, he's, this is why there are some problems with the film because it, you have to have the character saying it like, this isn't my point. This is um, yeah. made, made by the person that I went to see the, see the film with, so I should attribute it uh, not to me, but there, yeah. Who did you see the a, film with? Um, my friend Vic. So uh, is he French? Thing. He is not. He is, um, yeah, he's not. But if if I had been to sit with a French person, I'm sure they would have hated it. And this, we can get onto this, the French reception. Anyway, the point that I was going to make is that he um, has to say that he loves France. One time he does go down and he kisses them when he comes back from from uh, Elba. He, um, you know, kisses the sand, and it's like, oh yeah, he really does love France. But it's like it does. There's no clear reason why any of these events are happening. Like, what what are the the forces that are driving the coup, mm. like what are the, you know, the threats, what are the, even in the coronation, like this, is this the pinnacle? Is this the, the kind of the high point of the film? Well, I think dramatically it's that it's, it's the annulment. It's not the coronation. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and that is a, that is a bit of a problem because it means that all this other stuff is just kind of um, window dressing for this, like not particularly interesting interpersonal um, and, and I would, and, relationship. And it, to, to like to repeat the point that I made earlier, like even taking it on, on its own terms of like, yeah, it's, it's Napoleon Hart's Josephine, you know, the film, um, like 
that denouement, you're kind of like, yeah, he's kind of sad about it. But it's like you're not affected by it, I don't think. So even even on its own terms, it's it's weak. I did want to pull pull out one thing, which I thought was a bit of an Easter egg. I don't know if you caught this or maybe it's just me. But during the coup, there's a scene where um, soldiers break into the office of hmm, – now I've forgotten who it is. He's kind of a slightly kind of portly man. can't remember who he is. Yeah, one involved. of the members of the directory is having breakfast. Exa- he's having breakfast, exactly. And he goes, I'm having my breakfast, my succulent breakfast. Don't you touch me. Which, um, for, for the heads out there, they will recognize this as a, I think, a reference to Charles Dosa, the Australian, Hungarian-Australian man uh, who was arrested by police in the 1990s um, at, a, at a Chinese restaurant because he would go to various restaurants and eat a succulent meal, a succulent Chinese meal. And then they, would, they arrested him, you know, after having him having gone away and, and, and done a eat and run or whatever you call it. Um, and they arrest him and they pull him out. And he's like, I was having a succulent Chinese meal. Don't touch my penis. Don't touch my penis. Anyway. Um, if you if you know what thanks, I'm talking about, you'll recognize that. that. If you don't, you'll be like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Um, yeah, what are you doing? But I swear that's I swear that's a reference to it. A little I Easter. Think, right? I the way around. Maybe Dosa was referencing the directory. Mm, I do. I do remember that scene, and he and he says, uh, "Yeah, he says succulent," and it's like that's a weird choice of words. So maybe it is. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. So, anyway, <laughs> yeah. So. Um, are there any are there any things to take out? Because I, I thought there were some actually, go on. and so I'm just going to mention them, um, kind of go through them quickly. So it's not exactly, re- I mean, I suppose not exactly redeeming features, but moments where either consciously or inadvertently, I think there is some kind of insight. So one is, I think, the fact that they came as a family. So him and his brother and his mother, to a lesser extent, you get the sense of them in the, the kind of the Bonapartes as a package, this family of um, ambitious provincials in the, you know, in the kind of the French capital and then the center of the French empire. And I thought that was, um, you know, that was reasonably done well. I thought the um, the coup against the directory was actually done very well. Right. And I mean, you know, it's um, I'm not a um, I'm not uh, especially fluent in French revolutionary history. But, um, you know, I do know that famously Marx famously mocks the, the coup as uh, as a farce when compared to the to Cromwell's kind of it's a re a restaging of Cromwell's dissolution of the long parliament, according to Marx, and that it's a farce compared to that because it's um, so kind of uh, tumbled down and chaotic and confused. And Napoleon is kind of threatened by the, um, by the members of the directory before he calls the troops in. And it's all kind of um, half cocked and disorganized and ridiculous, particularly for, um, you know, a figure who has this um, uh, mystique and world historic aura as the great kind of political leader and military genius. And so I thought the the actual the direct the coup by which he establishes himself as consul, I thought that was um, remarkably well done. Um, if I were to write a review of, of this film, I would I would call it first as tragedy, then as fart. I don't why, think you why? get I don't think you get any points for that at all. No, no. nothing no. at all. No. Tumbleweeds. We mentioned um, we've mentioned um, uh, Oster, the Battle of Austerlitz already. I also thought like um, the burning of Moscow and the um, the invasion of Russia was actually you know it had its moments. That was cool. Um, both with the kind of the guerrilla raids by the Cossacks and the dramatic scene where he sits in the Tsar's throne and then walks out of the walks out of the palace and sees the buildings collapsing 
um, you know, around the Kremlin. I thought that was also actually showed you kind of um, what cinema can convey um, in a way that no other art form can, I think. Um, it's just a shame then- it was a bit too CGI'd. I thought was the fire. Yeah. 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 yeah, I don't oh. know. I thought it I thought it kind of I thought that slight effect made it better somehow. You know, I thought that kind of it slightly made a it bit more eerie. mythic. Mm, yeah, a bit maybe. more eerie and a bit more mythic, a bit more kind of uh, Zack Snydery. But anyway. It would have been um, better if they'd they'd actually burnt down Moscow to do it, or if they'd built a whole replica <laughs> Moscow and then burnt well, it. Well, it would have gotten a lot of support from you know, a lot of a lot of state support. Um yeah, to, George. To, to do that. I think that um, your position would definitely correspond with lots of people on Twitter, um, you know, with um, who would support that. But anyway, um, that aside, like you know, the other kind of famous, the other famous moments, they're incredibly, they're just incredibly flat. So you have kind of Robespierre's famous speech, um, uh, virtue, terror is virtue, virtue is terror, and this weird kind of. Um, tubby hysterical Robespierre completely in contrast to oh, the, any kind of effective representation there um, was a nice little bit with that which or a little contrast where he um they accuse Robespierre of being worse than Caesar and then like not too long after Siez tells Napoleon people think you are our Caesar so there's a kind of a, a thing running through there yeah that's true actually yeah that's actually a good point yeah um and then um but you know then there's the famous the whiff of grape shopped where he um he disperses the um he massacres the the kind of the royalist protesters um with a cannon um and it's just again it's Th- completely that's presumably flat. meant to be like I, I mean it's flat i totally agree but i also i assume that Ridley Scott trying to say look how blood bloody and bloodthirsty he is or is ruthless I mean, yeah i mean he's kind of ruthless um, i mean the, the royalists apparently killed loads of, of napoleon's troops as well in that kind of uprising so it was you know so it's not like it's um what was just like the state massacring innocent yeah. innocent little royalists who should be fucking ground into the ground anyway um but you know whatever that's, that's my take flat yeah but flat and then there's no real like you never get a sense of um the fact that he's a beneficiary of um of the revolution of the republic just like you say kind of stumbles into these roles happens to be in the right place at the right time takes advantage of them and the only moment where i thought you actually did get a sense where you got some kind of convincing portrayal of napoleon as um as something approaching the man himself is right at the end when he's sitting in the ship that's going to ferry him to um saint helena and he's talking to the um He's talking to the um, the cabin boys, the British cabin boys, and he's telling them about how, like, oh, you know, he was let down by his marshals because they didn't understand geometry, whereas he can do all of these kind of calculations in his head, and that that's how you fail because you're dependent on the failure of others um, or the success and failure of others. And I thought that was actually a very good scene. Um, yeah, that that's true. And maybe to add to that, the moment where, although it's a little bit corny but when he returns from elba and then he confront you know he's confronted by um all these uh infantrymen in front of him and then they all like he wins them over and he's like oh yeah napoleon and like that's 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 that was historically accurate and i thought brought something to life and was well done um albeit that one was that was a little bit corny but still you know i think that that accurately that caught something that that yeah the way of popular support i think if the film had been had been more successful those two uh, scenes would have been would have been great because it just those were the times when you could see the charisma see the kind of the force of history either he's where's the riz these, man yeah that he was he was rizzing up those those cabin boys um 
if I'm using risen exactly right. <laughs> they were like hanging off. They were hanging off his every word, and and he was yeah, he was saying like encourage greatness, and you could sort of, you know, they had to be shooed out when when um, Wellington came in, and and yeah, and I think and similarly when he kind of he was he was convincing his old um, fifth fifth army or fifth battalion or whatever it is um yeah the fifth regiment of, i think fifth regiment that's it yeah to kind of like not shoot him and come back on his side and it's like yeah that is a that is a chance for him to to sh- to show both his personal charisma and also that people recognize in him this you know this force of history and ultimately the ideals of the revolution obviously that's quite not, not straightforward to to represent on the screen and it just doesn't really it it doesn't really happen i kind of wanted to to to, to be emotionally invested in that in that scene but it just didn't quite wasn't quite possible to pull it off because I don't think that 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 kind of thread had been had been kind of established sooner but on the on the page maybe these these scenes could have um could have worked quite well in in isolation yeah. because there was something in there like why is it that when he's talking to to people you know not in these one-to-one kind of situations with with Josephine people react and respond and you know, uh, kind of recognize something in him, but yeah, wasn't to be. Well, I wanted to make a point which is like slightly related. I mean, just in terms of the personality, you know, um, Napoleon as a character personality, um, which is, I think, the thing that everybody, I think, knows about Napoleon. I mean, Napoleon is to a certain extent a byword for the parvenu, the, the 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 kind of every man who rises to the top, who doesn't have privileges, um, who makes it on his own. You know, he's a self-starter. Um, you know, it's like an image of meritocracy in a way. If Rise you have and grind, enough, mate. Gu- enough gumption, you'll make it to the top. And so, like, that's something that everybody knows. I mean, I actually watching the film, I was reminded of of uh, Julien Sorel, the the the, the hero of, of um, Stendhal's The Red and the Black, who idolizes Napoleon, and he himself rises to the top um, from from nobody, from provincial nobody up to um, you know up up to the nobility in in the 1830s. And like he has a bust of Napoleon, you know, Napoleon's a hero to like so many kids who could just rise up. You know, you don't need, you know, you don't need the accoutrements of, of wealth and, and existing power. You can make it on your own and, and become a great man yourself. And like, <laughs> that's just, that, I think that in some ways that was the most offensive part of the film that that just doesn't come across because there's no grasping ambition other than, oh, I'm going to coronate myself. Okay. There's that bit. He gets the crown and then it doesn't fit over his laurels. Um, but other than, you know, it's like he just defaults his way through the the ambition is not there in fact the ambition is much more with josephine who herself is also sort of a parvenu so um i guess this is why again it should have been napoleon heart yeah, she's looking but, she's looking to survive in yes, the aftermath of the yes. terror yeah and she's looking to yeah and like looking for for a, a man of, of power and wealth to kind of impress yeah, the protector yeah, yeah, so it's, you're right. It's it's different. Um, I thought you know a better pick, a better depiction of the Parvenu was in um, the final season of uh, Succession. If you want to watch that, you know that was a <laughs> was a much more Napoleonic no figure. Um, no spoilers. Uh, have you not uh, seen Succession yet, George? No, I have, but I think it's um, no. I think I'm I'm basically agreeing with your your point, yeah. Alex. That that's it's such a great portrayal of of that and 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 the sacrifices and the decisions and the you know what you have to do to to make it. Um, in that way and I think the reason why the film couldn't couldn't present this is because you know Napoleon was who was his main interlocutor it was Josephine through these through these letters it was not he wasn't talking to to people he wasn't making speeches so you couldn't kind of see what his kind of public rationale for what he was doing was and And there's missed opportunity yes you're right Uh, there's missed opportunities because you know the other the other people are there I mean apart from you know you have the czar 
Um, but also you have Siez, you have Talleyrand, you know, you have some of the, not to mention Robespierre. I mean, not that Napoleon and Robespierre knew each other. Um, but, you know, the point is, like you say, George, there were, the characters are there to have the kinds of um, interaction where you could have made, given the opportunity to convey something about um, the man in the context of his era. Um the the other element, I mean, this is a small element, but nonetheless, I think it's a telling one. Um, is in terms of historical misrepresentation. So it's something that struck me was, I mean, the film is beautiful, you know. So I mean, it's it has the odd kind of great cinematic moment, but in terms of the, um, you know, it's authentic to this every stitch of clothing, you know, the sumptuousness of the kind of um, the fa- kind of the um, famous Napoleonic uniforms. Um, the ball gowns of the ladies, the costumes of the aristocrats, um, Napoleon's uh, regalia during his coronation, all of this. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's spectacular in terms of the staging, the costumes, um, the beautiful palaces in which, and the courts in which um, so much of the events happen, the dining rooms and whatnot. Um, But you said, Alex, uh, there was some misrepresentation, which you didn't like. Tell us. Oh, I don't know. No, oh, and you put me on the spot, and I can't recall. Um, I don't know. What, while I'm, I vamp, and you, and you, you. Um, well, I can, I can well, say because well, the one thing the, that did. Sorry, let me, me just the duelists in the duelists, right? The, oh, yeah, tell us about the duelists, um, actually. Yeah, the, the first film by by um, Ridley Scott. Also, Napoleonic during the Napoleonic Wars, though Napoleon like appears at one point, right? But he, it's kind of brief and um, whatever. He seems much more like Napoleon, like Napoleon, I would expect, than Phoenix's one does at, at any point over the two hour, 40 minutes, but whatever. Um, but there's a thing where they, because it jumps from different um, kind of battles or where these, where these infant, not infantry, they're hussars, um, kind of um, duel, basically, because these two men end up dueling over 16 years in different places. And it jumps from eight, 1801 to 1806 or something like that. And they, I think, I don't know, I think it's a voiceover um, a narration, or if it's one of the characters saying, um, you know, the um, military style had changed by then, and they, you can see them, they're kind of dressed slightly differently, or whatever. And, you know, that's just a little tiny bit in a film which is much shorter, it's an hour 40, and somehow captures much more historical richness than Ridley Scott's most most recent um, contribution does. Yeah. Uh, it's worth checking out. I mean, for me, like, one thing which I thought was telling, um, but important, and I, I think also a giveaway as to the kind of the um, I suppose, you know, like an authentic failure in the part of the film is the fact that um, Napoleon has so many um, um, black aristocratic, you know, kind of aristocrats and military officers supporting him. And this is the man who wanted to restore slavery in Haiti, you know, very famously um, or infamously rather. And so I thought it was a real kind of um, a real, a real odd moment in the film where basically, you know, it's, pro-slavery propaganda dress, you know, disguised by woke representation in the 21st century, you know? So kind of uh, the oddest kind of wrinkle in terms of um, that, uh, the failure of historical authenticity that ends up kind of in, um, for, for the benefit of kind of the sensitivities of a 21st century audience, it ends up, um, camouflaging Napoleon's own, um, the fact that Napoleon himself was um, intent on restoring slavery in the first independent black republic in the world, you know. So that I thought, given you know, given how the the effort that was made with the rest of it to be, um, if not kind of um, 
if not historically accurate on all counts, at least historically authentic. I thought that was um, egregious in a in a in a real way. Yeah, um, I mean historical inaccuracies, and I think in cinema, you know, it all depends on what what's the purpose of them. If it's in, yeah. if it's if it's to tell a story, if it's to make things that you know slightly convenient or more epic, or you know. F- in the, in the service of a deep, deeper truth or something like that, then yeah, that's, that's fine. But if it's essentially, um, as you're saying, Phil, like can make it ending up with a quite confusing message or like going against some actual historical things, which aren't explored. Like we, we have to wait for the, the Tucson, uh, biopic. I don't know if that's on Ridley Scott's to-do list, um, to, to see the other side of, of that. But yeah, I mean, this, the, it, it did definitely look, you could definitely see a lot of money had gone into the costumes, the sets. I think there was some dodgy CGI at a point, which always pisses me off, but the actual, like it just, it, yeah, it particularly the, in some of the inner like palace scenes and, and that sort of thing looked yeah, they They did look really, really good. So I, I just, if I can, just, I wanted to make one a point about the ending Right, where yeah, like, tell us, give <laughs> so us the, the spoiler. Does Napoleon so, win or not? <laughs> yeah, um, he uh, like it's all. We're all living in France now. Didn't you? Didn't you know? Um, actually, no. You know, the, the Portuguese court actually de- decamped entirely to Brazil. Um, and Brazil became the seat of empire because of Napoleon's invasion. But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm getting um, distracted. One of the so he finishes right with these cards up saying you know oh three million dead in the Napoleonic Wars you know these blah, blah, this many dead and it was a bit like this was Ridley Scott's attempt to stamp some meaning on a film which had had been absent throughout the whole thing so there was like there was no point that he was trying to make throughout the film and then he goes oh and it was really bloody and you're like oh was that the point of the film okay was that what we were doing for this past two and a, two hours and a half um, and it's funny because I then I I recalled I thought I had recalled. Um, Eric Hobsbawm in The Age of Revolution making a, a point that the Napoleonic Wars weren't exceptionally bloody. And I wasn't sure, so I went back and and, and picked up that, that book. Um, and indeed, he does make a point that compared to the wars of religion of the 17th century, or indeed to the 20th century, um, the, the Napoleonic Wars weren't exceptionally bloody, nor were they exceptionally pointless, you know, if you compare it to the kind of um, you know, churn of bodies of the of the First World War or something like that. Um, so that was kind of interesting just as a... Um, as a sort of contrast there. Um, and it, I, one of the, one of the other things it just about, because when I went and picked up the Hobsbawm, there's a great quote at the beginning from Saint-Just, the like Jacobin leader in 1973. Can I read it out? Um, we, because it's very much to the point of Dude. the thing that I was saying about the military being kind of young and these young officers and whatever. Right. So, uh, quote, in a time of innovation, all that is not new is pernicious. The military art of the monarchy no longer suits us for we are different men and have different enemies. The power and conquests of peoples, the splendor of their politics and warfare have always depended on a single principle, a single powerful institution. Our nation has already a national character of its own. Its military military system must be different from its enemies. Very well then, if the French nation is terrible because of our ardor and skill, and if our enemies are clumsy, cold, and slow, then our military system must be impetuous. Anyway, that's something that um, Ridley Scott could have tried to capture little bit in the film mm. um and i mean and, and didn't because he is like he's british and he's like oh, napoleon sucks <laughs> yeah i mean that's that is i think part of it is that it's uh it is a film by a brit who's like napoleon was a was a bad dude and wellington was a cool guy but no i think it's it's kind of telling that that's the 
this sort of film with this epic, you know, if, if you have an epic intent, it's always better to have, um, you know, to have one of those cards flash up at the beginning. And what you read out, Alex, could have been a good kind of card at the beginning because that's the theme <laughs> that's like what what is explaining this. But then to have this at the end being like, it, add all these numbers up, look at all these people that he killed. It's just, it's really trite and it's really like, well, that all of this was for nothing. Then, basically, there was no <laughs> ideals. There was no, no reason for it. It was all over his, um, you know, toing and froing. And, because he's um, a cock. A, Don't be cock. Yes. Otherwise, you'll kill a load of people. This yeah, yeah, on for, again, off again relationship with Josephine. So this um, is this is this is really Josephine's body count in in, yes. what, in the, the literal yes. sense. But there we go. Like, she's yeah. she's yes. to blame for that. I mean, I'm not to slut shame her, but like, nice and bad decision. <laughs> No, I think like that would be Ridley. That would be the message of Ridley Scott's movie, basically. Yeah, like you get cocked and the millions of people die. <laughs> yeah, it's a harsh, oh, it's a harsh um, truth. Yeah. So um, I guess that takes us. That indicates that uh, we are indeed still in the end of the end of history. So indeed, um, Can I, but but but, but one 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 quick 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 little point. I'm sorry, Phil, to step on your toes. But um, no, I had fine. to look up at upcoming biopics, right? Things that are coming that are due to come out, um, and maybe this indicates that there's a, a a shift in cinema, as you indicated, kind of in your opening comments. Um, Scorsese is directing a Roosevelt biopic, which is coming out, uh, which is in pre-production, and then also films which have been announced, but I don't think they're in production yet. George ones about George Washington. Woodrow Wilson, Ulysses S. Grant, and Leonardo da Vinci. So um, maybe there's a, a kind of a, a change going yeah, there's on. There's a run of American presidents there. That must be something to do with mm, um, that must be something to do with the <laughs> Trump effect, I guess. Um, but that is that is actually interesting. Um, you know, that is uh, yeah. I wonder if there is something happening. People are kind of um, are uh, searching somehow for um, fumbling through or. Perhaps there's a hunger and a demand both on the side of the of the um, of the um, the cinema industry and directors and so on, as well as on the part of the public, for kind of fumbling towards some kind of political expression. Um, yeah, I just yeah, I mean, one thing which I, I don't know if it's a particularly kind of you know sunny thought, but it, it it did make me think this this film as a whole, like this is the sort of sadly the sort of film that you know is produced by a society which is as ours seems to be in a process of like self self abolition but no alf haybung so this is where this, i was kind of you know on my way back from cinema thinking about this like there's no positive conquering force like which is great and terrible today there's no kind of bonapartist or caesarist solution instead you know there's nobody propelled upwards by the by the force of a rising class instead you just have this kind of guy where things happen to him and he doesn't express any personality and then loads of people die and it's like that is a that is the is, is that the story of history like that that mm. we tell ourselves that don't get, basically don't get that's cucked. the best you can that's we I maybe mean, going back to the earlier point maybe but it's like it did end it did end up making me think i would have preferred it if if it had been a kind of a much more negative portrayal like kind of trying to take him down but like showing him as a you know this this great man and then saying like well he was terrible but it just kind of was you know there wasn't any any kind of um force of history in it so maybe i've been expecting yeah. too much but that's what it seemed no no but it could only me, like same. we've said i mean it could only really the story the story is the relationship with josephine and that you know could have it, i mean it probably should have always been an important part of any kind of biopic of the of napoleon um but the fact that it's the only kind of coherent 
a narrative thread throughout the film um yeah tells you that we're still at the end of the end of history i think um perhaps um as effectively as any kind of electoral outcome any um failed government any governmental collapse any kind of economic collapse um i think uh, that's uh, i think that's uh, the clear message of the ridley scott film so it's a thumbs down, um, I'm afraid, listener. But nonetheless, you know, there are some cinematic moments. So do do watch it. We'd be interested to hear to listeners and viewers to see what you guys thought. If you have watched it or intend to watch it, let us know what you think. If we've been fair or unfair or if there's things that we've missed out or should come back to perhaps. And uh, Alex has given us a list of movies that we that we I'm sure we will come to. Definitely the Scorsese movie um, and maybe the others too, depending on um, who directs them, I guess, and who's in them. Other than that, um, I'll hand over to Alex to yeah. say goodbye. No, do 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 um, shout us other films if you want us to talk about them. Um, we do these occasionally. We've seen maybe that we've done them a little bit more frequently than before, um, but uh, we enjoy doing them. We hope you like listening to them. So uh, thank you for being with us as usual. Um, and I believe this is going to be the penultimate episode of the year of 2023. I'm not exactly sure. I need to check. But um, thank you for being with us in, in 2023 anyway. But we'll see each other once more before the end of the year. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>